Hello and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Consider that, that it was Christ who showed the world for the first time, the world had never seen it, now they had. For the first time, the world saw what real, pure, true love was. There is a word that has been spoken about, sung about and acted out as long as we can remember. But do we really understand it and do we know how to do it properly? Consider the place of love in your life. We can do it well or we can do it disastrously. Dr. Corbett is continuing his series of messages that challenges to look at the way we live and understand the role of virtue in our lives. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues in his series by virtue of love. We live in a world and this graphic for me illustrates for what many people is the world they live in. It's a stormy sea, they get tossed about. It's like for many people, it's what what other body blow am I going to take this week? How, how is life going to throw its worst at me again this week? And so for many people, this is what it's like. This uh, stretch of water in the Bering Strait between Alaska and uh, northeast Russia is some of the most treacherous waters in the world. And as I said, this is what it feels like. So for many people, they, they, their lives are characterised by stress, and by anxiety and by inordinate pressure that they are feeling. And so the solution to people who feel like their life is being tossed about, they, they haven't got an anchor point, they haven't got a direction, they, they, they can't seem to navigate through the, the, the horrific waves of life. The answer is to live by virtue, by virtue. And I hope to explain to you what virtue is and how we can do it. It's more of an, uh, something that the ancients prized and I hope to help you to prize and treasure it as well. It says in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, For this very reason, speaking to Christians, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And that's what I hope we can do today. Uh, give you good reasons to supplement your faith in Christ or your trust in God with a desire to live a virtuous life. And that happens, as it says here, by learning something, by knowing something. It doesn't come natural. Virtue is unnatural. Virtue is moral excellence. Moral excellence. It is, it is a, a, a way of living that encompasses certain attributes as we're going to see and last in our last session when we open this up the first attribute we looked at is peace and if someone's stressed and battling with anxiety or anxiousness and under pressure peace is a completely foreign thing to them but I hope that as we look at this you'll begin to see ah that's how you get it you don't get it by pursuing peace you get it by pursuing virtue and peace becomes one of the fruits when we consider that, that text for this series out of Second Peter, it was written at a time probably late 63 AD. And in a few months' time, Peter, if you're looking at Second Peter chapter 1, you'll see Peter says, I know I am about to depart soon. He, he knew he was going to die. He actually says in Second Peter that he knew he was about to depart soon because Christ had told him so. So Christ had told him that he was going to die. You might remember that 
in John chapter 20 or 21. And so these are the words of a man who knows he's going to die. And the illustration I gave when I introduced this is of those people who are on United Flight, whatever it was, that was supposed to crash into, the, I think, the White House. And the passengers on that plane getting reports that the Twin Towers had gone down, the Pentagon had been hit. They knew something was going to happen. They knew they were going to die. And so they, they got on the phones and they, they, they rang loved ones. And those words that went on to answering machines, they only had a few seconds, were for them, if I'm, if I'm going to leave this planet, this is what I want to say. This is what I want you to know. And really, it's, it's the same sort of atmosphere for me when I read Second Peter. It's a very short book. He hasn't got long. He knows he's going to die. And this is what he wants us to know, to live by virtue. He, he says in his opening introduction to virtue that if you, if you live by virtue and, and put this in the context that Peter was about to die, Nero had already began to massacre thousands of Christians. These people in northern Turkey, Asia Minor, were acquainted with people who'd already lost their lives for doing nothing other than refusing to worship Caesar. And because of that, they were being butchered. So he says, this is the time now to live effectively. This is the time to live fruitful lives. And he says in chapter 1, verse 8, For if these qualities, the qualities of virtue, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Our Lord Jesus Christ. So by not only saying, yes, I want to be saved. Yes, Jesus Christ is my saviour. But by then saying, this is now, now therefore how I'm going to live because Christ is my saviour. Peter is saying, you choose to live like that, you'll be fruitful and effective in your walk with Christ. He goes on and, and says, in fact, if you don't, you aren't a genuine Christian. Pretty big call. But this is what he says in verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And don't want to create confusion there. What he is saying is not, if you do this, then you will be saved. I think it's the other way around. If you're really saved, you will do this. If you are really saved, the root of what's happened in, in you, the fruit will be these qualities. So let's not confuse fruit and root. There's not a thing you can do to earn your own peace with God, your own salvation. So how do you do it? How do you live a virtuous life? Well, it's as simple as this. Walk with Christ. You hang out with Christ. You will feel his challenge. You will be challenged by by how he does life. You'll be challenged as you, as you journey with him again through the shores of Galilee, as you walk with him along the dusty roads of Capernaum, as you walk with him up the hill into Jerusalem and you see how he conducts himself, as you learn from him in the Gospels and you walk with his spirit today, you, you can't help but be moulded and shaped because of that walk into a virtuous person, a person who lives differently. So it's as simple as that, but it doesn't come naturally. And as we are looking at the, the second virtue or the second aspect of virtue, we're going to be looking at love. And this is by virtue of love. 
Now, I'm not trying to be provocative in the sense that I want to have a dig at anyone. I don't want to have a dig at anyone because that wouldn't be loving. And I don't want to be up here talking about love and rant about people who've got it horribly wrong because that wouldn't be loving either. Do you understand my heart here? So as we talk about love, I was thinking, what graphic? Well, I kept the background of the, the Bering Strait seas, and, but what else can we overlay onto it? Because we, we, we sometimes think love and we think, you know, the and we think the, the, the red chocolates and all the rest of it and the mushy gushy, you know, that look that Kim gives me every time she sees me. But it, it's not always that. But what... So the graphic I've got here is actually someone comforting someone else. And I, I wanted in the graph, I wanted, but I couldn't get the right angle. I wanted it to have something in the background that was either a cancer ward, an ambulance going off after a scene, or, some, or something that conveyed that, and I couldn't find anything. So please just imagine that what those hands are doing are comforting someone who's just experienced loss of some kind. And that's an act of love. So that's my explanation of the background here. We do live in a world that celebrates and prizes love. We've, haven't we just seen that, you know, with the recent postal vote? Let's talk about the elephant in the room for a minute, shall we? The, that, that when that slogan came out, love is love, it, it, it aggravated me, it, it upset me, because it's like saying, a tree is a tree. Uh, and it's, it's just, it doesn't mean anything. So, so this is the problem. Although we have a world that celebrates love, and for those who've watched The Crown on Netflix, who's watched The Crown on Netflix? It's 8, 9, 10, 12, 14, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. I'm just making up random numbers at the moment. I uh, have seen it. There's a scene in there which talks about um, uh, David, the, 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 the son of King George V, who left his royal position to marry Mrs. Wallace. Some of you are old enough to remember that. And throughout this thing, he, he continually says, it's either the crown or it's love, and I choose love. And, and I guess, I guess in, in one sense, he's trying, to have peop- he's trying to win people to his side because that's a difficult argument to say that's not right. It's difficult to. It doesn't mean you can't, but it's difficult to. So, so the world does prize and it celebrates and it champions love. But the problem, the problem is we live in a world that confuses love. We live in a world that has a very distorted view of love. And as a pastor, I've dealt with marriages that are, that are under strain because one or the other says, I don't love them anymore and now I love someone else. And, and then, then these horrible words come out of their mouth. I can't help my feelings. I had one husband say that to me, a couple, and I often have couples come from not this church, outside this church, and this couple was from outside this church, came to me, and their marriage was in deep trouble, and this is what he said to his wife. I don't love her anymore, and I can't help my feelings. I'm in love with another woman. Uh, if if I had the time I would I would actually help you to see you can only you can only help how you feel in fact 
what you do determines how you feel. And it's not like feelings come on you like the wind comes on you when you walk outside or rain comes on you and you have no control over it. You have a lot of control over how you feel. Um, it starts with the decision that you entertain. You make that decision, it leads to an action. That action leads to a feeling. That's just the way we're wired as human beings. All right. So we, we have a world that confuses love for just a feeling, like that comment that I've just given you from that man. And it's confused with desire. Uh, if you have a desire for something, then it must be love. And if it's love, it must be right. And I, I hope to show you that that's not true love. That's probably closer to what we might call infatuation. The early Christians were, were radically transformed because of what Christ taught them about love. Radically transformed. And the, the, the contrast in how Christians began to live in the first century, into the second century and into the third century was so stark that one hist Roman historian at the time in the first century, his name was Tertullian, he in writing to Rome, he, he noted this about Christians. He said, see how they love one another. See how they love one another. The early Christians were noted for love. Well, uh, around the second century, Justin Martyr, who was um, a well-known Christian leader at that time, he said this, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refused to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. This is the difference that Christ made when he said something like this. And he said this several times through the Gospel of John. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And, and the fact that it's a new commandment when in fact it was an old commandment means that what is new about it is how you are to love one another. And we'll see in a moment that, that he, Christ, gives this and I mean radical. And if you understand radical, radical is spinning it on its head. It's, 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 not, a, it's not a one degree difference or one percent difference. It's a 180 degree difference. Radical. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I, I, someone shocked me when they said, you know, Jesus never said I love you. Those words are never recorded coming out of the mouth of Christ. Does anyone doubt that Jesus loved people? There's no doubt about it. The, my, my friend who I was talking with on Friday night, who I, I didn't know, I, I, I learnt this about him, that, that he had experienced the grief of his own son taking his own life in a, in a horrific way. His own son seemingly had so much to live for. He said this, people came up and said to him some of the, the dumbest things. 
they, and I, I wrote about this in the e-news, and forgive me, those people who contacted me, thank you, uh, reminding me that I put the wrong link in the e-news to the article. I was, I'd had a long day, I'd been up at 4 a.m., I'd been up at 4am and uh, I sent that out at the end of the day at about quarter past midnight the next morning and I was tired and so that's, so that's why I made the mistake, alright? <laughs> anyway, you, you'll find it eventually. And I talk about how we comfort those who are grieving and how we, we comfort those particularly who are grieving from a loved one taking their own life. It's not a simple thing to do, by the way. And this, this friend of mine said... The best comfort he received at that time was, was not, from, not from people in the church who meant well but made things worse. I've mentioned to you the comment that he heard when, when people would come up to him and say, shaking his hand, saying, I know exactly what you're going through. He felt like hitting them. He actually said to me, I couldn't help it. I felt obscenities rising up and almost coming out of my mouth as the rage of that comment. And he said... The nicest thing that anyone did was when an old friend of theirs, who was a, a, a high school principal, took a week off in the middle of term, took a week off and came and just turned up at their house and she answered the door. And he said, we didn't realise how emotionally difficult it was going to be to go to the door again, to have someone else say something that would hurt us. Or say something well-meaning but hurt us. Like, you know, God has, the, has good reasons for this. Don't ever say that. Uh, All things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Ah, horrible things. This lady sent people away at the door. They, he said, I just wanted to be alone. And she, she didn't attempt to have conversation with us. She didn't even tell us what she was doing. She just answered the door and she was there. And he said, you know, I didn't really know what she was doing, but now I look back and go, thank God, that was brilliant. So when we are showing love and comfort, it's far more than words, isn't it? Far more than words. And Christ wants us to love people the way he loved people. And knowing that I've told you that the words, I love you, never came out of his mouth, please, 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 husbands, don't take that as license for you to think, well, that's, uh, that's good, girl. I don't have to tell my wife. I had one husband tell me, why should I tell her continually that I love her? Why should I tell her? I told her that on the wedding day, 15 years ago. Surely she remembers. I'm glad you're laughing. Verse 35, Jesus says, if you love one another as I have loved you, which is the new commandment because it's a new way. That's the part of the new commandment. It's a new way to love one another. This is what's going to happen. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So Christ's teaching on what love really looked like, it radically, there's that word again, it radically changed how people interacted with each other. And today we are baptized into the teaching of Christ. We are baptized into the culture that Christianity has brought to the world. We don't even know, we're like fish who are swimming. We don't even know we're wet. We have so much Christ teaching that informs our legislation, informs our cultural mores, it informs how we interact with people. It has become so ingrained in our culture now that we just thought it was always there. And it wasn't. 
I want you to consider that how Christ taught people to love affected the way people treated women. Men in particular treated women. Women were considered to be people who could not testify in a court of law because their word was worth nothing. So when Christ rose from the dead, he orchestrated that the first people who were at the empty tomb were women. The first people to testify that Christ had risen from the dead were women. Radical. We read that and yawn and go, well, yeah, of course. No, not of course. Women could be charged with adultery under Roman law and executed. There was no such thing as adultery for a man. Christ changed that. How husbands treated their wives. It was common in Roman times for a man to have a wife simply so he could sire children. He would then have a mistress and a concubine and frequent prostitutes and Romans didn't think anything of it. Christ came along and he says, if a man lusts in his heart after a woman, he has committed adultery. And we read that and go, but this was radical about respecting women wives in particular when Christ came and he taught about love the way widows were treated we read in in first and second Timothy that Paul writing to Timothy says make sure widows are cared for we read in James chapter 1 this is true an undefiled religion that you care for widows and orphans all based on the teachings of Christ radical 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 stuff When Christ was on the cross with his mother, Mary, and John, the youngest of the 12 disciples, he made sure that his widowed mother, Mary, was cared for. John, this is now your mother. Look after her. This is just radical stuff. Radical. The way children were treated. Jesus played with children. He had time for children. He spoke to children. He taught about how parents should treat their children and love their children. Parents are to train their children. You know, when we bring our children to church, we don't expect that they know how to do it. Nothing is natural that is good. It takes time to train them how to be respectful, how to sit still, how to learn to listen respectfully and so on. And it also takes care and attention to be able to talk to your children as a person of worth. I think parents who love their children will be parents who apologise to their children regularly. Not repeatedly, regularly. You know why? Because parents get it wrong, don't we? If you're a father here and you've never got too angry with your kids, because I know you have, and and you've never got too angry with your kids and not apologised, shame on you. Christ taught that children were valuable. Christ taught that slaves, and don't think manacles, don't think black Africans on the bottom of cargo ships being taken, kidnapped, don't think that. Think people who cannot pay their debts. The only way they can pay their debt is if they sell their service for seven years, the scriptures limited it to, to the person they had the debt they couldn't pay. And then at the end of that seven years, they were released. That's called indentured servitude but the bible uses the word slave it doesn't help but it uses that word but christ taught that these people were to be paid fairly they were to be treated fairly and we read in the epistles that their masters those who owned their debt were to treat them as if christ 
how Christ treated them. This is radical stuff. And then finally, the frail and the elderly. And if you know anything about first, second century history, it was the Christians who did two significant things. They tended the wounds of lepers. They tended the wounds of lepers when no one would touch a leper. The second thing they did into the middle of the second century was they would rescue abandoned baby girls who were left to the exposure of the elements by a culture that did not prize having a baby girl. The frail, the elderly, young children, Christians because of love for Christ and what Christ taught about love showed love in these human interactions. Absolutely radical. So I'm going to say, and that's why I love that song that, that, that Amanda had, your love ran red. Wow. Oh man, ponder that. And again, it's so easy as Christians to think of the cross and it becomes like, uh, what colour would you like that, sir? Silver, gold, bronze, like a little wooden one. And we forget what the cross really is all about. It's about the love of God demonstrated in the most painful way. Think of what the cross represents. It represents pain. It represents suffering. It represents discomfort. And why? Why would Christ go through that? Because he loved. And so when he gives us a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you, it's going to mean certain things. Do you see where I'm going with this? It's going to mean that your love at times is going to hurt and be painful. You're going to pay a price. You're going to be vulnerable and taken advantage of. Let's Consider that, that it was Christ who showed the world for the first time. The world had never seen it. Now they had. For the first time, the world saw what real, pure, true love was. No one had ever seen it before Christ came. And they saw it for the first time. And as someone said, the shock was too much to handle. That's why he was put to death. I, I, I know that there are people who say, well, I'll believe in God if he stands right here. Man, if he stood right there, I, I'd like to see your reaction. You, you, you would be in the presence of pure love. You know what that would do to someone? Being in the presence of pure, unconditional love. And it's not like he lo- like, there are a lot of, I, I like all of you. And that's probably because I don't know quite enough about you. The more I get to know some of you, the more I think, you creep. No, I don't, no, I don't, no, I don't. But don't we do that with people? Oh, okay. Now you're looking at me like, no, we don't do that, Pastor. Where are you going with this? Sometimes the more we know about people, the, the more we see that is not to like. Well, think about God. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about you. David Pawson once was upset that he was being slandered. And he was an international speaker, Christian speaker, and people were beginning to cancel their speaking invitations because they believed the slander about him and he was ticked and so he prayed one of these imprecatory prayers which means you know it's got the word smite in it and he's he's praying that God would smite the people that are spreading these false rumors and do all this and he said the Holy Spirit just spoke to him and said David would you rather that they know the truth God, I take back all those prayers. Just let's leave it as the rumours that are going around. Us, that, that I'd much rather them think that than them for actually to know who I really, really am. Do you want people to know who you really, really are? Your answer should be not yet. But God does. And if he was to stand right here and you were to stand in his presence, I don't know how I would respond to that. Man, perfect, pure love. Wow. 
Jesus said this, and this is radical stuff. It's shocking. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's Matthew 5, 43, 44. Then he goes on and he says, and it looks like this. If your enemy asks you to walk one mile or if someone asks you to walk one mile, walk two. And we think, oh, that's not hard. But who's the enemy? Who's the person asking them to walk a mile? Would have been a Roman centurion who didn't want to carry his 30, 40 kilo pack anymore. He puts it on you. And in the heat of the day, he says, walk with me a mile and carry my pack. Jesus says, walk with him too. Love that man. The invader of your country. The one who has burned your houses, burned your fields, killed your family, as had just happened in the village nearby where Jesus preached that sermon. It takes on a whole new complex now. Jesus is describing a kind of love the world had never heard of. Let's consider this cross, the ultimate expression of his love. Let me ask A set of rhetorical questions. Was it easy for Jesus to go to the cross? Don't answer too quickly because I think some people think, yeah, of course, he's God. He's he's, he's easy. And I want you to think in terms of the Garden of Gethsemane, which means olive press, which Jesus strategically went into because he was being pressed. That pressure on him caused him to sweat drops of blood. Don't tell me this was easy to do. And yet he was doing it because of love. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD, audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting By Virtue of Love from our online store. For updates and special offers, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.